Caution. The contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. This week on the Coffeehouse, we're bringing you not one, not two, but three whole biographies. And that's because we're going to be exploring different pedagogical music methods and their creators. Though there are many, many methods out there for all the different instruments and ages, we're just going to be focusing on three of the more famous methods. The Orff method, the Kodai method, and the Suzuki method. In this episode, we're going into the history of the people behind these methods, and in our next episode, we'll talk about the methods themselves. So let's hop right in, starting off with Karl Orff. Orff was born in 1895 to a family in love with history as well as music. He was encouraged to learn new things, including the piano, organ, and cello in his youth. He was an intelligent and curious child, and when he felt his school teachers weren't providing him with enough learning material, he would learn things on his own. In this way, he discovered many musical genres for himself, ranging from impressionism to serialism to 12-tone music. His first published piece was a German leader, Eliland, Ein San von Kimsi in 1911. When he was only 22 years old, Orff was appointed Kapellmeister of the Munich Kammerspiele Theater, where he began a promising career as a composer for the stage. However, that year he was also drafted into the army, wounded, and then removed from the army to again work in musical theaters around Germany. At this point, he began to cultivate an interest in music of the 15 and 1600s, particularly Monteverdi. He reimagined several of Monteverdi's works into the German language, such as his Orpheus. This influenced his music to take on a more modal nature and feature drones and ostinatos. He also turned to old text for much of his libretto and lyrics. By 1924, we also began seeing his lifelong interest in teaching arise as he founded a school for gymnastics, rhythmic movement, and dance. He also served as a conductor for a concert society called the Bakavarian in Munich. However, he resigned from this position as Nazism was rising in Germany. In 1937, his seminal work Carmina Burana was premiered with wide acclaim. Some members of the Nazi party derided the work, including the critic Herbert Gehrig, claiming it was, quote, incomprehensible and jazzy. Oh no, not jazzy. But it was overall well-liked by the party and was hailed as exemplifying Nazi values. Nonetheless, with the work coming under any criticism from the authorities, several opera companies did not perform it for fear of further government action. Orff is a composer who had choices to make in terms of political affiliation. He had friends on both sides of the Nazi party, and he himself was awarded a music teaching position in which he interacted with the Hitler Youth. Much of Orff's output during World War II fell right in line with the Nazi expectation, and Orff never outwardly opposed their policies. However, after the war, in an attempt to speed up his denazification, he instead insisted he had helped form the White Rose Resistance Party, although this is probably fallacious. During the war, Orff busied himself creating his musical pedagogical techniques known as schulwerk that is still used in classrooms around the world today. Now, Carmina Barana was just the beginning of Orff's personal journey into antiquity, most of his works after the 1940s were plays revived from the ancients, such as Antigone, 
and the music, though not desperately trying to sound ancient, did feature choirs of instruments and percussion in contrast to the rich counterpoint and complexity that other composers were displaying at the time. The Greek theater of the past used the meter of words to create a sort of music and a chorus of actors contributed interjections to the main speaking character. Orff replicated this sort of structure with his reinventions. Orff's grand and final work, De Temporum Fine Comoedia, a play for the end of time, was written in 1971 using words from the Oracula Sibyllina, an ancient Greek text dating to 600 BC, and is thus rich in classical Greek mythology and prophecy. This was the last work Orff ever produced, though he lived for 11 more years. He did a few revisions of it, but overall his creative life was over. He died in Munich in 1982. Our next pedagogue is Zoltan Kodai. Kodai was of Hungarian descent, born in Kekskemet in 1882. His father was a train station master, and this allowed the family to travel a great deal during Kodai's youth. However, Kodai was still able to participate in local cathedral choirs, which is where he first took an interest in music. When his family was living in the town of Nagasambat, Kodai studied scores he found in the cathedral and also took violin and piano lessons. Though his father was a station master by trade, he still had an interest in music and would host frequent chamber music nights. Young Zoltan wanted to participate as well, and there just so happened to be an opening for a cellist in his father's string quartet, so he taught himself how to play. When it was time to head to university, Koldai couldn't choose between music and language studies, so he simultaneously enrolled in the Budapest Academy of Music and Budapest University to pursue both of his interests. Eventually, he earned degrees in music composition and music education in 1904 and 1905, respectively. Though he was well-trained in the Austrian style of music and composition, Kodai actually took more of an interest in the folk music of Hungary. He developed a lifelong friendship with fellow Hungarian composer Bela Bartok, and together they set out on a grand tour of rural Hungary to record and analyze Hungarian folk music. Eventually, in 1906, Kodai turned in a thesis on the structure and analysis of this folk music and earned his PhD from the Academy of Music. But Kodai wasn't just interested in the music of his homeland and sought to expand his horizons. So for a year, he traveled to Paris to study piano with the famed professor Charles Vidor and gained an appreciation for the Impressionist movement, much different from what he had heard at home and he then continued to use both his composition and education degrees. Upon returning to Hungary, he was soon appointed a teaching post at the Liszt Academy. He also wrote numerous concert works that featured stylized Hungarian folk melodies, such as the famed Dances of Galanta and variations on a Hungarian folk tune better known as the Peacock Variations. Kodai wrote numerous articles and books on the subject of teaching music. He was passionate about his beloved folk music and felt that it could be used to teach school children to love music from an early age. More importantly, he advocated for music being taught in schools to all children, rather than children having to seek outside lessons or attend special conservatories in order to learn music. In relation to these feelings, he composed a great amount of children's choral music in an effort to expand the accessibility of music for all. 
Due to his efforts to promote music for everyone in the country, in 1945, Kodai was named as president of the Hungarian Arts Council. Later, in 1962, he was honored with the award of Order of the Hungarian People's Republic. Kodai passed away in Budapest in 1967, leaving behind a reputation as one of Hungary's leading arts promoters. And our final musical figure we'll be talking about today is Shinichi Suzuki. Suzuki was born in Nagoya, Japan in 1898. His father was a prominent instrument maker in Japan who first started making traditional Japanese instruments, but eventually became the first maker of violins in Japan. Interestingly, Suzuki himself didn't learn to play the violin until he was about 18 years old, though he was set to start helping with and eventually take over the violin making business. It is said that he was inspired to actually learn the instrument after hearing a recording of the performer Mishka Elman playing Ave Maria. Suzuki was a student at a commerce vocational school at the time, and so violin lessons weren't offered. So instead, he taught himself to play the violin simply by listening and mimicking what he heard. However, in 1921, he did travel to Germany to study with Karl Klinger. During his travels abroad, Suzuki also met, befriended, and played music with Albert Einstein. Now, there is some controversy around Suzuki's credibility with this story. Some people claim he embellished the facts to give credibility to his pedagogical method, and cite that it appears he failed his audition to the Bulern Conservatory where Klinger taught. The rebuttal to this accusation, though, is Suzuki never claimed to have studied at the conservatory, but rather was just a private pupil of Klinger. Upon returning to Japan, Suzuki formed a string quartet with three of his brothers and became the conductor of the Tokyo String Orchestra. He also started the famous Talent Education Research Institute, which was his home base for teaching his students as well as other educators wishing to teach by his methods, which we'll go more into in the next episode of course. Suzuki's methods of teaching spread around the world thanks to concert tours that he would take his young students on. Throughout the mid-1900s following World War II, Suzuki took groups of children to America and England to perform at music education conferences. As his methods gained popularity, students and educators began traveling to Japan in order to learn directly from Suzuki. A mainstay of Suzuki's method was not only to have the goal of learning music, but actually making yourself a better person. He encouraged his students to do good deeds during the week and report back to him during lessons what they had done the previous week. It is thanks to this ideology of nurturing and developing a child to have kindness and thoughtfulness that Suzuki was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Suzuki died in 1998 in Matsumoto, Japan, at the ripe age of 99. So now we've seen the history of the people who were inspired to teach music to the younger generations. Be sure to look forward to our next episode where we'll describe each method and how it seeks to establish the common goal of inspiring children to develop a natural love for music. And if you've developed a natural love for this podcast, be sure to drop us a like and a review on whichever platform that you're listening on. Follow us on Spotify if you aren't already and share it with a like-minded friend or family member. From the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. 
Vivaldi's Violin Concerto in F Major RV 293 was performed by the Wichita State University Chamber Players and John Harrison, conducted by Robert Terzini. You can find The Coffeehouse on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. Thank you.